Um, I, I appreciate you weren't expecting to hear about shaggy goats and rams fighting each other at lunch today. And if you're exhausted by hearing all that, what John just read, Daniel certainly was when he'd finished seeing it. Well, we haven't yet finished with dreams of weird and wonderful animals with growing horns. And if all those details are going over your head, that's okay. Daniel didn't understand them as well. And it's not exactly what I'm going to be dwelling too much on either. But what I would like us uh, to engage with is the question, what's, what's our worldview? The, the events that happen, how does that fit in the bigger picture of what I experience? You only need to switch on the news and you've violence in Marseille and 49 shot dead in Orlando within days of each other. Where does that fit in our thinking and how do I gain security of the future with all the many unpredictable events that are happening and will happen? And I think this chapter really helps us with that. Uh, it's a warning and, and an encouragement. Now have a look with me to verse 1. It tells us that Daniel has a vision that takes place after the one he's just had in the previous chapter. And what we were shown in the previous chapter uh, last week in Daniel 7 uh, was this sweep of human history of the births of great empires and their downfall all the way to the end of history where God's kingdom will be fully established and last forever. Well, we've now been transported from a vision last week where we were by a swirling pool to standing by a canal. And in Daniel 8, we have a similar theme to that of in chapter 7, but instead, instead of the sweep of entire history, it focuses on a specific point in history. It depicts an event that has already been fulfilled in the past as far as we're concerned, but is yet to happen for Daniel here in chapter 8. And so the first point I want to highlight from this passage is that God knows the future. God knows the future. We get this because in verse 26, have a look at verse 26, it says, seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. God is showing Daniel what is set to happen. Animals are often used to represent a country or a sports team, whether it's to express a self-image that they want to get across or highlight some unique uh, feature of the nation, just like this afternoon's Euro match between a lion and a dragon. And that's exactly what's going on here with what's being portrayed in front of Daniel. The ram and the he goat aggressively charging around the place and fighting each other with growing horns is a picture of great powerful nations and conquering human kings trampling and charging their way through the centuries. Here, God is showing Daniel the pattern of how successive human empires will come and go. An angel, who is named Gabriel, reveals to Daniel in verse 17 and to 22 who all these animals and horns represent and what will happen to them. And we can actually look back in history, for example, and see that after the empire of the Medes and Persians, which is represented uh, by the ram... Uh, was defeated by the king of Greece, Alexander the Great, the he-goat, 
in verses 20 to 21. He, Alexander, then died tragically young, hence the horn uh, at its peak being knocked off. Four generals who Alexander the Great appointed to govern the Greek Empire as he was dying, we know certainly weren't as powerful as he was, referred to in verse 22. But then what we have is this little horn that really takes the spotlight for the rest of the text. And again, sorry, another history lesson for you. We, we, know, we know that this horn represents an individual, an individual who came up after the four Greek generals called Antiochus IV. And this individual is known in history for becoming a mighty and powerful emperor who had a great hatred for the Jews and causing significant persecution to them, hence the horn's direction to the beautiful land Israel in verse 9. But he is eventually stopped and destroyed. Which brings me on to the second point I want to highlight, is that God guides the future. God guides the future. So not only does God know the future, he reveals what is set to happen to Daniel. Well, the text tells us he also guides the future and is in full control of it. Because we see in verse 19, have a look at verse 19, it says that there is an appointed time for the end. It's revealed to Daniel that although there will come a time where God's people that he is part of will suffer horrifically in the future, there is an end date. In verse 13 to 14, we have this, um, this angelic conversation that tells us that it will be limited, giving 2,300 evenings and mornings, which has generally been interpreted of the number of years Antiochus IV uh, was in power before he's destroyed and the damage done to God's sanctuary uh, was restored. Now, as mentioned before, the general understanding is that all uh, that has been described in this chapter has happened. It's been fulfilled. Uh, The the time of wrath and the time of the end, uh, specifically in this chapter and this context, refers to the end of Antiochus IV's rule and his destruction. Not the end of all things and the final judgment. So all this has happened, and yet it does still have relevance for us today. Because although it's uh, talking about an event that is a past here for us, it's actually also pointing to an event that is happening now and is still to happen in the future. Chapter 8, because of what Antiochus IV did to the Jews, paints us a portrait of what evil looks like in God's eyes with three very clear expressions. And the first one is, that I put up there a bit earlier, is that he sins against God, verse 10 to 11, by considering himself equal to God, and historically does a whole lot of awful stuff to the temple. The second is that he sins against God's people, verse 24, by destroying them. And then the third, he sins against God's truth, in verse 12b and verse 25. Uh, historically possibly referring to what is done to the Torah, which is Israel's law. So, so that's the archetypal face of evil. Sins against God, sins against God's people, and sins against God's truth. And there have been many people who have come and gone throughout the centuries in history who have become powerful 
and done great evil and caused great persecution to God's people and who still manifest themselves today in many forms, individually, institutionally, and nationally, that express anti-God, anti-church, and anti-truth. And so this vision of the little horn is to be seen almost as a rehearsal. A rehearsal of what opposition looks like to God and his people. Opposition that is happening now and will happen again even on a much bigger scale. The picture of Antiochus IV, it fits the history. But we have something bigger to realise through this text. An implication of this text is that evil in all its forms, minor and major, will echo throughout history, throughout the centuries, until the very end of time, both on national scales and locally. Revelations, the final book of the Bible, tells us it's only going to get a lot worse before it gets better. It speaks of a continuation of conquests, war, famine, and death that throughout the centuries have been taking place and are taking place. And in regards to God's people, well, you only need to read Open Doors and the Barnabas Fund News to see the extent of extreme hostility to Christians uh, facing around the world. Those from Muslim and Hindu backgrounds converting to Christianity, being killed instantly by members of their own community and even their own family. I was reading uh, this week... um, in Sri Lanka, the 22-year-old uh, Janani, was, uh, she was beaten uh, to death by her mom uh, with a wooden plank um, for converting to Christianity. Um, the mom took the body in the back garden, buried it, and then um, uh, called the police, told her she was missing, and then eventually uh, confessed to what had happened. Are you appalled by what you see now going on? Because we're meant to be. Daniel was in verse 27. But God guides the future. Just as before with this angelic conversation going on in verse 13 to 14, make it clear that the suffering will be limited, there will also be a limit and cutoff point that will be put on the suffering and persecution that is happening in this world to God's people now and in the future. Because Revelations, the very last book of the Bible, encourages us that all of this disaster and horror that is happening in the world is actually under the authority of a slain lamb. I'm sorry for for another animal in the picture here. Um, But that slain lamb represents the crucified and risen Christ who will put an end to all evil and restore all things. So, both in this rehearsal of the end in chapter 8 and the persecution and distress that will happen now until the very, very end are all in the hands of God. Just as God destroyed the opposing evil and restored the temple in Daniel's vision of chapter 8, God will ultimately defeat all evil, restoring his church to himself at the very, very end. Which 
leads us finally to the very last verse, 27. Daniel was sick for several days and uh, still being disturbed by all of this, he eventually cracked on with the work he had to do. Well, there are three implications I want to draw on for us from this passage that I hope are helpful. Uh, Firstly, we adjust our worldview. What is your Christian worldview? Obviously, we live in very uncertain times in all kinds of ways. We've got a referendum next week uh, that as a nation we have to make a decision on. Daniel was given the confidence, despite the changes and the horror that were going to happen, He knew God not only knew the future, but he also guided it as well. And we also have that confidence that through the sweep of whatever future we have left, well, it's all in the hands of God, both personally and corporately. Well, secondly, expect suffering and spiritual warfare. Yes, we live in a country that may not see the horror happening regularly that Janani and many in her position have been victim to on a regular daily basis and on a large scale. But we live in a rapidly secularizing culture where we see the spirit of anti-God, anti-church and anti-truth being played out in the communities that we live in, where we work and in the relationships that we're part of. You know your workplace. Some of you no doubt experience or know of others who have been up against fierce hostility of militant atheism at work. Colleagues, knowing your values and what you stand for, or you just being there, is costing you in all sorts of ways. And don't just think that all of this is a result of just fallen human nature. In verse 24, have a look at verse 24. It says that this human evil, this Antiochus IV, becomes strong by a greater power. Not only are we fallen, but we need to be aware that behind great evil is demonic activity. The Bible makes it clear that Satan is ruler of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air, basically meaning he is active. As Christians, we are in a spiritual battle. And as we engage in the world, we need to be aware of this, both in our lives, the institutions where we work, and the nation that we're part of. Do we have the armor God has given us from Ephesians 6 on? And then thirdly, we continue to do the work that God has given us to do. We don't retreat in a spiritual hub or in full-time Christian ministry out of fear and avoidance or start some mass end-of-the-world club obsessing about dates and times of when things might happen. No, we, we get on with the king's business, the work we have, the institutions and organizations we're involved with, which may have no Christian foundation whatsoever, just like Daniel and Babylon but being fully aware of and not deceived by the horned beast that lurks under it all. And yet, and yet at the same time, we serve the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, in those places where we work, knowing that he has overcome the world. 
cares about our circumstances to the smallest detail and is fully in control. Well, let me stop there and pray. Father, thank you uh, for your words. Uh, thank you that you not only know the future, you guide the future, uh, both for our lives and, and on, the, on the bigger scale. And I uh, just pray that we are not afraid uh, of engaging uh, where you've placed us, that, but we can trust in your sovereignty um, in those situations. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.